Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles. I think this is episode 34 or 35 now. I don't know yet. It's getting old, isn't it? It's getting a bit old. <laughs> and I never really know how to do the description. I keep promising. You need to get the jingle sorted. I know, I know. Uh, it will happen one day. I'm hoping crosswise because I did put the challenge to them <laughs> oh, yeah. that they will write us a jingle. But anyway, this is Rock Pop Rambles, a weekly podcast that's a kind of... I can't even speak. Class. It's a podcast. It's a music talk show. Uh, that makes it sound really intelligent. And yeah, uh, yeah it's kind of... Scraping the barrel of research <laughs> using Wikipedia mainly. Just kidding. Not this time. Not this I've time. I've really done my homework. Yep. Grace has done a sterling job of research <laughs> this week. I'm Angela from the band Bug Eye and Grace is also joining me from the band this week. Hello. We've got a very exciting guest joining us this week. Yes, we have indeed. Yeah. I, I really do want to say, can you guess who? But you do know who it is. I do. And I think everyone would know from my post on Twitter as well. <laughs> Obviously, I announced it, but we have the author of Shebop, The Definitive History of Women in Popular Music. It's Lucy O'Brien. Woo! Woo! Yeah! Hi, Lucy. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. And um, I'm delighted to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I always enjoy talking about Shebop. She's such an amazing ball of energy (laughs) she has her own energy and she's out there and she's 25 years old now wow so it's 25 years on and so the new edition it comes out tomorrow or is it this next week drum roll comes out tomorrow and um uh yeah it's we've got a special silver jubilee um edition and my good Mm -hmm. friend gina birch um from the raincoats did special artwork um to um, did two paintings, one for the front and one for the back. And um, I've got a new chapter and um, new interviews. And I'm, it's lovely. The, the designer who, it's being published by Jawbone Press, and the designer just did a fantastic job, you know, kind of um, little echoes of that 1960s radicalism um, and um, uh, a huge kind of, it's like a subversion of the um, Rolling Stones yeah. map with the tongue, you know, because we're doing it she-bop style. It looks great. It looks great. My good friend Gina Birch, is that, that might be the coolest sentence I've ever heard. I know. Although it's not the only book you've, you've written. So name dropping, come, uh, the list, there's, you know, Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Oh, yes. I, I worked with um, Skin from the band Skunk and Nancy. Um, and um, we worked on her memoir and we were doing it during the first phase of lockdown. We're now about to go into the second phase. But, um, yeah, I mean, in a way, uh, luck was on our side. I mean, there was a silver lining to that first lockdown because she was in New York and I was in London and we were just sending chapters back and forth and we were on Skype and talking, you know, hours for hours at a time. And it was great because uh, normally she'd be touring and she'd be so busy but she couldn't go anywhere she literally could yeah. not go anywhere because that was the point at, at which New York was was uh just 
Oh, it's terrible over there, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so she and her girlfriend didn't even dare to go outside. Mm. So, so actually, you know, uh, it, it gave us a chance to work really, really hard on the book. And, and I think it paid off because we managed to um, really work through and work out what we wanted to say and what she wanted to say. So that in the end, um, when um, it came to publication, it really seemed to chime with a lot of what's been happening, you know, with Black mm. Lives Matter yeah. and with interest in new interest in and um, the music industry and, and issues of the diversity in the music industry. And she was kind of giving the alternative narrative of the 90s. You know, it wasn't all yeah. about Britpop and white boy bands. You know, there, there was a, there was a whole other story going on there. Yeah, we did an episode on Skunkanatsi, didn't we? With Big yeah, Bang. we did. We did, And yeah. I wish that book had been out because I think it came out after. It came out just after time. we did yeah. that, that show. And that would have been yeah. a real uh, big resource, it wouldn't was, it? Yeah, it was, it was still, yeah. I think it was still really, really a good, a good show and quite it insightful was. for the, the bits and pieces we managed to draw together for that. So, yeah, absolutely huge fans of Skunk and Nancy. So, uh, yeah, but back to, back to She-Bop. So 25 years old. So what, what was the world like for you 25 years ago when you first set out on the She-Bop journey? Well, um, you know, I, I think back and I think it feels really different. Um, uh, I was kind of young and furious and very influenced by Riot Girl because that was when Riot Girl was mm -hmm. really taking off. When I, when I was researching She-Bop, it was exactly the right moment. And, um, you know, I've got memories of uh, uh, being... <coughs> I think it was Subterranea, the festival, uh, the, the venue Subterranea, seeing um and it was a women only gig with hole and mm -hmm. um huggy bear oh and it, amazing it, and it was just one of those moments um and i thought i'm so glad i'm here and i think what what was so great was writing shebop in the heat of that time and that moment um was it reminded me of punk in that right girl came along as like almost like a second wave of punk of feminist mm -hmm. punk and then writing Shebop at that exact same time too really fueled that um, energy. Um, and I was very conscious of what drove me to do it when I first did it was I'd been writing for the music press for a few years by then. I mean, I joined the NME in the early 80s and um, uh, I was very conscious of trying to bring feminist debate into the music press and also to get more coverage for female artists because right back then um female artists were often relegated to like small features or just mm -hmm. reviews very rarely were they given big features or cover features yeah so I really made it my business to interview female artists whenever I could or female bands and then by the early 90s I'd built up quite a kind of portfolio if you like of, of a lot of different interviews um, and that was the basis for the book. And I, and I felt um, so strongly about the issue because there hadn't been a history of women in popular music, believe it or not, not at that point. Um, I thought, I'm just going to do it as a polemic um, mm. and I'm not going to try and um, kind of, um, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go for it. And even if I fall flat on my face, um, I, I just have to write this from the heart. Um, and people seem to really respond to that. And to the extent that now it's gone into four editions you know, over the years, <laughs> it keeps coming back. 
and keeps wanting to be updated. From from the first edition, what would you say were the, the standout interviews, that like content in there, the bands or artists that you featured in your mind? Which which were the ones that really stood out to you? Oh, um, in in lots of ways, it was the interviews that I did with the women behind the scenes in the industry, mm-hmm. who um, some of whom had really poignant stories, like Ethel Gabriel, who was this A and R. Sony, you know, back in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, and then she 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 was this amazing New Yorker who such a strong woman who had been a mentor to a lot of other women um, in the mm. industry. And I noticed this the more I talked to women, uh, how important that mentoring has yeah. been. Um, and you see it with each generation. Um, there is that phrase, each one teach one, and so many women were doing that. And Ethel Gabriel said, yeah, I thought I was the cat's meow. <laughs> <laughs> and then she realised after a while, even though she got loads of sales for the record company, that she was being <clears> able <throat> to look for promotion. And there were these mm-hmm. men being promoted who were younger than her and less experienced than her being promoted above her. And then she realised and she said to me, that was strategic. Um, and she was almost tearful when she was talking about it. And a few of the women I spoke to you know, just in lots of ways, the first edition was testimony. It was women telling their stories. And, yeah. you know, now, I mean, I remember when the Tigre kind of had that song, Not Another Book About Women in Rock. Um, but, you know, actually in the early 90s, there wasn't really much about the subject at all. Mm. And a lot of the women I spoke to, it really felt like these questions were being asked for the first time. You know, how... How do you uh, make your music? How do you express yourself? What really inspires you? Yeah. What matters to you? Um, what kind of obstacles have you faced as a woman? Um, believe it or not, a lot of those questions hadn't actually been asked of, of female artists. So it felt like a sort of outpouring at that point. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a whole combination of women from all different generations I think I got a bit possessed. <laughs> so I spent time in New York and I, and I went to Paris to interview Uma Sangari, who's this fantastic um, griot singer from Mali. And then I was in New York interviewing um, people like Eartha Kitt, who is this amazing um, kind of mixed race um, jazz pop singer, Nina Simone, Miriam McCabe, and then punk women. So I'm kind of going through all different genres and eras but what was striking about their stories was um there was a common thread to uh their approach in that they might have been playing very different kinds of music um and had different kind of circumstances but they all had this vision they all had a single-mindedness about them a really clear definition about um what they uh what they wanted to achieve and the more I've got to know about the music industry the more I the more impressed I am by that because you know the moment of uh, a female artist signs to a label usually a major label there's always someone who says oh you know you shouldn't do it like that you should do it like this you know there's always uh they they have to kind of run the gauntlet of A&R and marketing and PR and everyone's got an idea about how they should be presented how their music should be presented and what they should do so to withstand all that and kind of come through 
with a really clear idea and with your music intact and your sense of self intact, you know, it's quite a thing. Um, yeah. And it does need a sort of single mindedness to do that. Do you think things have improved much over the past 25 years? I think they have. I do think they have. And I think a lot of it's down to logistics because I think we have a very different music industry now. And a lot of it is just down to the internet and the way the internet has kind of broken down that that power base that the major record labels had for so long. Mm. Um, and that sort of old boy network that was yeah. really infused within that structure. And I think that structure is now, you know, it, it really has broken down and fragmented. And yes, you still have the old boy attitudes and you see it with, like, say, the lineups for the Leeds and Reading festivals and, you know, um, die hard <laughs> kind of, well, you know, punters just want male bands, don't they? <laughs> So it's like there's the old industry and the new industry now, and the new industry feels very inclusive and um, that there's a lot more freedom to for women to get their music out there and to get it heard. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot more support out there. I mean, I think, I think at the sort of grassroots level, and I don't actually like just calling it grassroots because it's even sort of to the middle level now, you're seeing just such a huge amount of um, women either all female bands or you know bands mixed gender um yeah it's 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 really really vibrant the scene but it is it is that breaking through to the next level which it doesn't seem to be changing that much yeah you know that yeah that's a really interesting point uh, i remember talking to um mickey brenny about this you know the band lush and um now she's in poroshka um, and she said, yeah, you know, it's like your sales, once you get over that 150,000 mark, then it's like the game changes completely. And then you're being marketed in a completely different way because it's all about hitting numbers, isn't it? And, and sales. Um, and I was, I always remember this really chilling story where Mickey said that she and Emma were in a photo shoot and it was some kind of style magazine and it was in the, it was in the 90s. And um, uh, they got them to sort of pose in a, in a lady's toilet um, and um, wear really tight clothing. And then at one point, the photographer said to Mickey, just lean forward. Um, and then she knew exactly what he meant. You know, he was wanting to take a shot right down her cleavage. And she was like, no, I'm not doing that. She absolutely recoiled. Um, and then the, the guy and the, the stylist team got really annoyed with them, you know, and really huffy, like, well, you know, if you're not going to play the game. Um, so there's the, they, they came right up against that structure that I was talking about, you know, the sort of old industry structure, which is, and, you know, you realise what, what that means, that phrase, play the game. And Madonna's talked about that. She talked about that in her billboards um, when she won the Women of the Year Billboard um, Awards in, I think it was 2016, she said, and it was so amazing coming from someone like Madonna, who you think of as always in control, saying, I stand before you as a doormat. And, you know, um, that she felt that she'd been completely abused by the, the music industry system. And she said it's because, um, you, you know, you realise what it means to have to play the game. And you get punished if you don't. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, thankfully, things are, well, as I say, things things are changing. I think things are changing slowly, but well, it they're is, headed in the right direction. Yeah, aren't they? It's, exactly. We've we've got um, a couple of bands to play this evening who I think are absolutely fantastic. Yes. One of which uh, label buddies of ours actually, Nervous Twitch, who mm-hmm. signed to Reckless Yes, who are doing great great things and who are you playing i'm gonna play a band that i've actually played before in a previous episode skinny girl diet oh they're, they're really good yeah. they're really good i'm glad i'm glad we've got another one of their tracks well, i had to listen to those tracks and i think they're so brilliant skinny girl diet i i've been following for a little while i think they're just so excellent oh they're fantastic yeah, yeah. and they remind me of that early right girl feel yes definitely yeah. the right girl reboot isn't yeah. it yeah Absolutely. Um, very, very inspiring. And then Nervous Twitch, it kind of reminds me what I liked about um, that post-punk sound, you know, the Delta Five and um, the Au Pairs. So this is from the same album that I talked about last time, Heavy Flow, mm-hmm. called Silver Spoons. Um, I actually was reading about it recently. I read a book by Vivian Goldman called Revenge of the Sheeple. Okay, yeah, I've read that Have you read that one? Yeah. Yeah, and and she was talking about Skinny Girl Diet, and that's what made me think, oh, I need to play this track. Um, So, yeah, Skinny Girl Diet. Yeah. 
So yeah, that was Silver Spoons, Skinny Girl Diet. Everyone needs to buy the album Heavy Flow. They do, they absolutely do. Can't go wrong with that album. But Grace, what are we talking about today? So today we're going to talk about the fabulous polystyrene. And we've been wanting to do this one for a while, haven't we? I've yeah. done so much research. I'm feeling really excited about this. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm pleased that you really <laughs> stepped up this week, Grace, and did Grace did a lot of research for me. So um yeah. I just thought, oh my god, we've got to get to the stage where we can pay a researcher. This is heaven. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm just going to jump straight Go in with for this it. one. Right. Polly Styron was a British musician, singer-songwriter and frontwoman of the punk rock band X-Ray Specs. Did you know that, Grace? I did know that. <laughs> Funny <laughs> that. Um, but she recorded her first demo back in um, sort of 1975, and that was actually an album that she put together, and she was only 18. Um, and it was sort of following that release that um, she recorded a song called Silly Billy and it was a sort of reggae mm-hmm. song yeah. that she put together. She was doing a lot of writing at the time, but none of it was really taking off in the way that she wanted. And after seeing the Sex Pistols play um, on Hastings Pier, see, I did some research as well, Grace. So you threw I've that added, one in, didn't I've you? I've added, I thought, what, what little yeah, nuggets you slung that one in? in here? Yeah, so on Hastings Pier and basically the Sex Pistols were doing a set that was full of covers and she just thought it was really powerful and just really inspirational and she decided that what she really wanted to do at that point was put together a band Mm -hmm. and so she put out an ad saying young punks who want to stick it together (laughs) to form a band and this is how x-ray specs was born so how did she come up with her stage name so so polly um she was really anti-consumerism she was anti um kind of capitalist society basically Mm -hmm. and and us being enthralled to um the consumerism so and she hated um fake fake things and plastic and polystyrene Mm-hmm. And hence calling herself Polystyrene. <laughs> well done, we you go. get a point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so this very much influenced the way that she dressed as well, yeah, right? It filtered through to everything. Because so, I met her a, a few times and I interviewed her for SheBot. And um, she, uh, yeah, lovely woman, full of stories. And basically, I think I consider her, along with, Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren, I, I see her as one of the real architects of punk because yeah. she came up with the, that kind of day glow fashion mm-hmm. and um, those bright, bright colours. In fact, you yeah. know, the colours that I've got on the front of Shebop, you know, those bright yeah. pinks and yellows and oranges, you know, she loved, she loved that because she thought punk, it could be, ju- you could be just as radical with, mm. with um, vivid colours as you could with, kind of black and and um yeah uh the sort of dark um the darker colors of, of mm-hmm. a lot of punk and a lot of the um uh work that Ma- mclaren and westwood were doing yeah um so she sort of set herself up as an antidote to that really and i think as well she was um she was uh expressing herself as a mixed race girl and i think you know the, the that whole theme of exploring bondage um mm. she she was fed up with the way you know she the mclaren and westwood and, and the idea of bondage trousers she she kind of felt troubled about that because mm. she thought well what about the history of slavery and what you know what are you saying about um yeah uh, you know the handcuffs and 
and um, uh, that idea of bondage. You know, she she was really taking it apart, critiquing it as well. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, Vivian Westwood actually said that um, she thought that Polly was the most important person in punk and that she was the only one who was actually really telling the truth. Um, yeah. And, I, th- you know, I think she was, for what the, the punk ethos was supposed to be, I think she was that through and through. But, I mean, the, th- the, thing, the thing is with, with um, Polly, she wasn't actually a fan of the term or genre punk. Um, she found it actually quite insulting. It was, it was very much a scene that she was sort of on, on the edge of and kind of labelled as being punk, but she didn't feel that that was actually what she was, given the the very nature of what punk was supposed to stand for, then here here you go, let's whack a label on it and create some rules of what that's supposed to be. And that's exactly what punk wasn't supposed to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, and also it was like quite nihilistic and dark. Yeah. And she, that's not necessarily what she was about. No, she had, she had fun with her, yeah. Yeah, with her music as well. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because punk... Uh, for me, punk is like feminism in that it's something that's grown and mm-hmm. um, it can be interpreted in a myriad different yeah. ways and that's the strength of it as a philosophy, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's certain core beliefs, you know, in like, say, with feminism, we say the core beliefs are sisterhood and solidarity and the core beliefs in punk are kind of DIY and anarchy. Yeah. So, you, you know, within that, you do it yourself and you do it your own way whatever yeah. way that is, and it just has to be authentic. So the band played their first gig at the Roxy on Neil Street in Covent Garden, which is not there anymore. Um, do you know what is there in its place? Is, oh, I don't know. No. You yeah. see, I, thought I'd do, I, I like my random yeah. little facts. No, I don't. It's actually um, a shoe shop called Speedo. Speedo. <laughs> it's not that interesting, <laughs> is it? But, um, but there is a blue oh, plaque. God. There is a blue plaque saying this was once the legendary... Punk club, the Roxy. Yeah. yeah. So you think about that while you try on your, <laughs> try your shoes. overpriced <laughs> fashion statement oh, shoes. God. Um, so back in the day, a lot of venues were actually barred from putting on punk rock shows as it, as it was associated with sort of violence and negativity. And um, there were actually just a very few select places that were, were actually putting on punk music. Um, but anyway, back to X-Ray Spec. So... Um, Polly was sitting in her boutique one day when the manager of the Man on the Moon, he came in and offered her a residency for the band. And that is how things really, really kicked off. And word spread very, very quickly. And then along came Richard Branson's label, Virgin Records, and offered to put out a one-off single um, release for O Bondage Up Yours, which was in 1977. And he was also... um, the person um, we mentioned this when we did the Sex Pistols, um, sh- the show where yeah. we did that, and I can't remember what else was on that show now, but um, but yeah, when you know when when label had dumped the Sex Pistols because they were just so nervous about what would happen because they were just so out of control and outrageous, the fact that Virgin picked them up and rushed the release out, yeah. um, because obviously to make it in time for the Queen's Silver <laughs> Jubilee, um, so yeah, so. Virgin, back in the day, quite a quite a good good label. I mean, obviously, Virgin. I don't think that it's not a label anymore, is it? No, I don't think so. Anyway, Polly avoided writing um, stereotypical things that women were seen to write about. So she wasn't writing love songs, and she deliberately wasn't writing love songs because she felt that it was expected of her as a female writer. 
she felt she wouldn't be taken seriously unless she wrote things that were more sort of topical lyrics um, about things that were actually happening as opposed to how she was feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, she talked a lot about people treating each other like what you were saying, Lucy, is like a commodity. Um, not just women being objectified, but all sorts of people being objectified. And and this was something that, that she felt very strongly about. And I think that comes across not just in the lyrics, but, the, you know, the the way the music plays together with that and I just mm-hmm. yeah just just the way that they that that she looked and everything kind of just fit I hate to say a nice package together but <laughs> just represented all of yeah. these 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 things um she said that she wasn't a feminist well, um, I was gonna yeah I was gonna but back then because it wasn't cool to say you're a feminist because there was all these sort of connotations as to what a feminist was which I know we can sit here and say it's ridiculous um but she never felt that that's what she was. There were a lot of punks at the time who yeah. sort of disassociated themselves with that term because of what it meant. And like it was like adopting a new set of rules, essentially, if you were a feminist, which is. Yeah, I suppose I, I would beg to differ. I mean, I, I mean, I think it was uh, more a mixture, really. Um, I think a lot of um, uh, women driven bands were very influenced by feminism um, during yeah. punk. Um, uh, and um, some more so than others, um, but uh, I think I think the general idea of um, liberation was there in um, mm. kind of doing it yourself and doing yeah. your own art and your own music in your own way. Yeah, um, and that was really freeing, you know, in terms of gender roles. Yeah. So there was a kind of feminism. Even if it wasn't explicit, it was implicit. Yeah, they were definitely influenced well, by yeah. feminist works, and and they, yeah, but well, they, they were feminists. But yeah, they, they just were, didn't but they want to give yeah, themselves they didn't want that, to label that themselves label. that term because of what came with it. Yeah, which was all the sort of um, we covered a bit of this in an episode was how the media was um, publicising. It was almost like a, a, a campaign to to sort of destroy feminism of the way that they were actually describing what a feminist is, like man-hating lesbians who don't ever shave Yeah, their you're not allowed to wear lipstick. And, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of these things. And so, you know, yeah. Uh, obviously, some of that must have resonated with people who just then sort of felt they didn't want to kind of put that label on themselves, which which is a shame. But they, they were feminists, whether they realised it or not. Anyway. Um, one thing I didn't know, actually, that came out of your research, Grace, was um, how she felt about um, Laura Logic, the, the oh, yeah. saxophonist. The yeah, yeah. Um, that she felt that she was actually a threat, um, and basically asked her to leave mm-hmm. the band. And uh, you know, and this again, well, this is where the media came came into this. Whether it's not clear from research, because I looked into this a bit further, whether it was because they just started to not get on and actually had an issue with each other or where it was external sources that were kind of making that relationship strained because I found it was sort of like a, an influential music journalist called Jane Suck who wrote yeah. a sort of scathing review pitting the two girls off against each other, yeah. which was actually quite upsetting for Polly. So I, I suppose what I'm wondering, was, was it something that then became an issue because of the media. So, you know, like the whole like Blur versus Oasis, which there was never this, it was a whole media made up circus, that this is probably a similar thing. Well, later on when I talk about her personal life, 
you'll see that she was actually in lots of ways quite a paranoid person. So I think that review played into that probably. Yeah. Perhaps the seeds were already there mm-hmm. of jealousy and that review yeah. kind of perhaps tipped her over the edge a little bit. Because fame, fame is quite overwhelming for Polly. Of course. Yeah. Um, she didn't like mixing around with media people because she sort of felt that they were always superficial. But, but, you know, she was always someone who was looking for respect and validation from people like, like John from the Sex Pistols. Um, she sort of wanted to be seen as, a, as an equal and she was a bit infatuated with him. Mm-hmm. But she sort of still felt like she wasn't being taken seriously by, by him. I think, you know, there's an interesting story, isn't it? <coughs> and I think it's in Zoe Howe and Celeste Bell's book, you know, Celeste, her daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they interviewed people who were on that scene at the time. And uh, John Lydon and um, a few of the uh, punk guys were sort of sitting around one day and Polly was there. And I think Polly did have a soft spot for John Lydon I think she really did want to have a relationship with him god knows why (laughs) um and they they were making her feel small and um ignoring her and she um went and locked herself in the loo and then she shaved her hair off which I think is quite um you know it's interesting you remember Britney Spears did the same when she was going through a crisis and I and I I think um Polly that was the beginning of her um, kind of gra- trying to grapple with the mental health issue yeah. that actually got worse and worse. And um, uh, and and touring didn't make it any easier. No. It, it kind of made her more vulnerable. Yeah, and so little was known about mental health in, in, in that, that time. <laughs> I mean, now, you know, you just know that she would have um, been looked after a lot more and mm-hmm. had more time to recover yeah. and recuperate. And, um you know, get her, get her kind of equilibrium. But then yeah. it was like constant touring and recording and yeah. in the end it just wasn't good for her. And she was misdiagnosed yeah. as well, wasn't she, for a while? I think she was diagnosed as schizophrenic when actually she had bipolar. So I think that, no, I mean, that obviously didn't. No, I don't know if they prescribed would've... any sort of medication that made things worse and what all is... of that would have played into it. Well, I mean, with the, the whole kind of the stuff going on with the um, media... And like you were saying, the stress with touring, things started to get quite difficult. Um, and this this really did impact her ability to be in a band. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, the band would book gigs and she just wouldn't turn up for them. And then the promoters back then, I mean, I, I can't imagine any of the promoters we know being like this today. I'd laugh <laughs> if they were. Um, promoters would threaten... <coughs> Promoters would threaten the rest of the band with, like, physical harm and they'd have to, like, run away. Could you imagine, like... I know. So I'm going to do a shout-out for Roger from yeah. Kick Out The Jams. Like, if you ever... Fr- I just laugh. <laughs> I can't, just can't imagine no. that. It's a different, different world. I remember promoters like that. When when we were in our band, the Catholic Girls, and we played a few gigs, and I remember one, playing one, but it was in um, a place in Kingston that was just full of skinheads. And um, afterwards, um, the promoter came up to us and said, oh, we're not paying you your shit. <laughs> so so eloquently put. Yeah, <laughs> that was just such a punk thing. Oh God! Oh. <laughs> yeah, going back to Polly, I I think she actually found a way through because um she then um ended up um living in back to back I can never pronounce it back to Dante Manor um which is the Krishna. 
mansion, you know, in Hartford. Yeah, was, yes. okay. To um, Hari Krishna, uh, the religion. And, um, you know, uh, her daughter Celeste remembers it as, as um, quite a difficult time because her mum just wasn't well, basically. Yeah. But I think for Polly herself, in terms of her art and her music, I think that that um, interest in Krishna consciousness and going to India really mm. helped her. Um, and, um, you know, she did some beautiful music after that. Mm. Um, very different, very different to um, X-Ray Specs. Mm, but yeah. kind of, um, in its own way, still very anti-consumerist and um, uh, mm. kind of had a whole philosophy um, uh, within that. Did you know that X-Ray Specs were the one of the only three British groups to play CBGBs? Yes, I did. That was from one of your. <laughs> I, should, I, should, I, should, I should have put you in. That was one of Grace's. I did. I'm sorry. Do you want to do it again things. and I'll pretend that I no, didn't? No, that's all right. I think it's right. fine. It's fine. <laughs> that's that is that is really really cool. That I didn't is, know that until I read really it. Cool. So on the 30th of April 1978, the band <sighs> appeared at the Rock Against Racism gig at Victoria Park in Bow. Tower Hamlets. Mm-hmm. That's in London for all of our US and yes, all the US listeners all, all out there, our, and uh, <laughs> people who are listening in in just some some really bizarre places around the world. Not bizarre places, but places I didn't even really think you about. wouldn't expect no, to have a no, listening exactly. base. No, exactly. Um, also on the bill, just so you can sort of appreciate, I suppose, where X-ray specs were going with their music and how popular and big that they were on this sort of road to. To, to be how big they could have, could have become at the time. Um, so also on the bill was The Clash, The Ruts, Sham 69, Generation X, and um, Tom Robinson Band. What a lineup! So, yeah. So in November 1978, the band released their debut album. Um, this, um, with the exception of Identity, which was partially based... Sorry, I've cut and pasted my notes together really really badly although this time it's not amusing sometimes there's some really funny, <laughs> some funny really cock-cock. weird things that come <laughs> out and I don't even notice until I've finished reading it out and then everyone just looks really confused but I get a laugh out of it so maybe I do it deliberately sometimes but um but anyway so um with the exception of identity this is what I meant to say which was partially based on um Polly witnessing um the Bromley contingent member of the band Tracy O'Keefe slash her wrists in the restroom yeah. of restroom, bathroom. You can tell this was American site. I copied this off of yeah, <laughs> um, in the Roxy. Uh, the rest of germ-free adolescents dealt with the anti-consumerist um, theme that we were, we were talking about. So that, that's the, the one song that touches on a sort of, sort of personal mm-hmm. note there. Um, during the release of the album, Polly was actually on lithium and stopped drinking and taking drugs. At that point, and the album actually came out when she was in the Maudsley Hospital in South London. Yeah. So, um, you know, that that just shows that just in quite a short space of time from sort of 1977 to where we are now in 1978 of the kind of spiral of of her mental health issues and and the troubles that were going on with, with the band. So, you know, obviously a tour followed to promote the album. Um, that was their first and only UK tour of X-Ray Specs in that, in that um, guise. And Polly was absolutely exhausted and basically six months later in 1979 left, left the band. Yeah. 
So, you know, as I it said... It all happened within such like a short space of time. I know. 1979, like... as we all know, is, is the best year. Right? It was the year I was time. born. But, you know, oh, this okay. today I found... <laughs> I always managed to fit it into the episode, into an episode somehow. <laughs> that but unfortunately, that is, is a sad, sad fact for the band splitting up. But, um, but yeah, so despite the fact that O Bondage Up Yours didn't chart, it is considered um, today... As, as a classic punk rock mm-hmm. record. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, lead singer Polly Starring told Mojo magazine um, in September 2008, this is what she said about the song. Most people think it was a kinky S&M song, but it was about breaking free from the bondage of the material world. I come from a religious background, and in the scriptures, the whole idea of being liberated is to break free from bondage. I had no idea of the bondage of slavery and all those images in history, like the suffragettes or slaves being chained up. When I saw Vivian Westwood's shop, Sex, which is what it was called, and all her bondage trousers, it symbolised all the other bondage elements I'd grown up with. So exactly back to what you you were saying. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, what I love about doing this this podcast is, I think, you know, growing up listening to music, huge music fan but I never really looked into the stories behind what I was listening mm-hmm. to um and that's what I really like about doing this show because you just find out all of these these things that just make you actually appreciate those songs so much more yeah. and and the the kind of art in creating in those 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 songs mm-hmm. so like I say the band only released five singles and one album but they have certainly marked their place and Polly has marked her place in history, um, the the album Germ Free Adolescence is widely acclaimed as a classic album of punk rock genre, and just just actually as a really important record that that was released not just through punk but in in general women in music. Yeah. So uh, that was that was my bit about about Polly. Well done, Angela. I think right now would be a good time to play some new music. What do you think, Gracie? I reckon so. Right. Well, we as I mentioned before, label buddies, Nervous Twitch. They've got a new single out, did you know? Today? No, not today. It came oh. out on the 9th of October via Reckless. Yes, it's called Keeping Faith in Something.
So that was Nervous Twitch with Keeping Faith in Something. Full of verve. <laughs> Nervous Twitch, Resound. Sorry, I'm just I'm just reeling off some yeah, like, um, reviews and stuff. <laughs> They've had so many great, great reviews yeah. for this. Really uh, well, great reviews for this, but great reviews for them in general. So there's amazing quotes of, you know, loud women are fans and basically say that, you know, it's somewhere between Bikini Kill and the Buzzcocks, and I quite agree with that. You really. can't wish for anything more, could you? Really? No, it's a pretty, pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty flattering uh, quote to to be able to put in there. I like think that's really nice. I'll take that any day of the week. So, Nervous Twitch are from Leeds. They're a three piece, and that track is just a taste of what's to come for their fourth album. You've always got online where you can mm-hmm. um, follow them on all their social bits and pieces, which we'll put all of that in the show notes. But do stream their music, do buy it if you've got the pennies mm-hmm. to do so, and do share it with your friends. That's how that's how families grow. That is- Sharing <laughs> is caring. Sharing is caring. To be I fair, yeah. Really, it's you know, I, I think I'm hanging from last night. Really? Still. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you were hungover. Well, I did that whole <clears> thing of. I thought, I've got to go out, I've got to go out before we go into lockdown. Oh, yeah, try and cram it all in. And um, all I can say is I ended up going to a restaurant, obviously, sat outside, um, but I built it up in my mind and booked the most drabbest place, I think. Like, I don't know, it reminded me of somewhere that maybe you, you, your gran would go to. Where, what, really in Croydon? Cool. No, no, it was near London Bridge. I won't name the restaurant. No, don't. I don't, don't want to name and shame. Right? I'm sure some people think it's great. But, uh, and I just, I just felt like, oh my God, could you imagine? Because it felt like the final meal. You know, yeah. like, like if it was, you were on death row and you yeah, were allowed yeah, yeah. to have your last meal. What would yours and, be, Angela? Uh, well, it wouldn't be that. And I just thought, <laughs> could you imagine if this, well, Actually, it is the last meal before before in lockdown, and I thought, what a waste! What a waste! Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's really annoying. What would your last meal be? Have be a roast dinner. Yeah, I was going to say the same. A you good know. roast dinner with There's Yorkshire pudding, shopping. cauliflower have... cheese, yep. Brussels sprouts. Actually, Brus- yeah, definitely to be honest with you. Sprouts. Um, was parsnips really no. nice roasted nah, with honey. What is wrong with you? I'd be really annoyed with that, to be honest with you. You don't like parsnips? <gasps> um, so the, I've had the odd parsnip puree that's it's gone down quite well. But well, no. it's still nice, but not the same. No, it'd be, what about dessert? Okay, right, three-course meal. Go. <laughs> right, three-course meal. You've got three I, courses, what are they going to be? I think it might have to be, now this is where I'm going to sound like a wanker. Go on. Right. There's this recipe, I can't remember if it was Nigella or if it was someone else, but it was like scallops with like this kind of Thai pea puree. Yeah. Really good. Right, that's my I starter. think you had that at my house once. Did I? I've made no, it you had a well. pea puree. Oh, that sorry, you wouldn't have cooked fish, <laughs> would you? No. Um, so, yeah, that's my cheap vegetarian, non-vegetarian thing occasionally. King, king. Is it a scallop or a scallop? Uh, it depends where you're from. Scallop is quite Midlands, isn't it? I don't know. Scallop, scallop. Never known. Who cares? It's the same, it's <laughs> same with scones. Scones or scones? Uh, scone. Scone. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really care either. But anyway, yeah. So, <laughs> so my posh starter. My posh starter, yeah. Then roast with all the trimmings. 
and I want proper roast potatoes, not some of the crap you get in pubs where they start roasting them and then they fry they get, them off at the end. Yeah. And they're, they're kind of all a bit yeah. like not Don't like just, that sort of bullshit. Nah. just proper roast. Yeah. Mum's roast potatoes. Yeah. What I want. With parsnips. Got to have parsnips. Loads of gravy. Get over parsnip. Oh my God. You know what? Or actually, I once had a roast dinner in a massive Yorkshire pudding. Oh, I've that had that. was heaven. Yeah, and that's had, brilliant, But it also it? had... You've got to get the gravy right, though, for to pull that off. You do. Also, the Yorkshire pudding as well needs to be pretty solid, but not, not too solid that it's not got its soul yeah. there, you know. That yeah, <laughs> it's got yeah, to have yeah. a bit of fluff, a bit, a bit of crisp. Soul, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to get a Yorkshire pudding right. Um, <coughs> yeah, definitely that. Um, and what else? I do like carrots. What about your dessert? Uh, dessert, dessert. Ooh, I think. If it's not cheesecake, you're wrong. Well, no, I was about to say, I think it would have to be. Um, now, the pub up the road, the Harrow, used to do a peanut butter and chocolate cheesecake. Right. Celia is. Which is the best thing in the world. And they don't do it anymore. And I've not seen it anywhere else. So Celia loves peanut butter dessert. Mm. I do, I'm I'm going to say it. I don't know what this is about. Well, I didn't, right? I hated peanuts. Yeah. And Branston pickle until I was pregnant. And then oh, suddenly. And then... Not, I didn't even like, have a mad craving for it, but I just suddenly was like, oh, actually, I, I do like it now. Same do, with like gherkins. Do the cravings just stay with you forever after? I didn't, well. It wasn't a craving. It was literally just my taste buds have changed and I now like those things. So it wasn't like I craved it, but it was just like, I had it. It was like, oh, that's just really nice. I didn't, I didn't really have any. The only craving I had, people? which was only for like a few days, was, you know, those Snacker Jack crisps that are like cardboard. There's like no yeah. calories in them, yeah. right? Like the most uninteresting yeah, thing you can eat. They're right? awful. Was those, but the salt and vinegar ones right that was the only that <laughs> i had i had a snacker jack sandwich with those no, a crisp sandwiches is, is really nice is great, actually but, but the point is like you know no interest i'm not really a crisp <laughs> fan but but what what do you mean well no just, well no the things i can eat crisps but what? it's not like i think oh i need a what do you mean you're not a crisp fan there are well, so many different types of crisp out there yeah but i would rather have i would rather have Chocolate over crisps, and it's a decision. They're not mutually isn't it? exclusive. Oh, they are. If it's like you know, you, you think right, treat time, <laughs> chocolate or crisps. crisps, and I think chocolate. Can we do some sort of poll on this? I think, I think we have to. Chocolate or crisps? Chocolate. Or crisps. I am confident. Just keep it really simple. That the general public are going to go for crisps. No, they're going to go for chocolate. Any chocolate over any crisp. Mm. Nah. Yeah. No. Apart from frazzles, I love frazzles. Bacon. Frazzles. Yeah, frazzles. any bacon flavoured crisp. But I'd still pick chocolate. What's over. it? Do you know Paula, oh, right? Paula sweet? doesn't like what's it? No, no. And the thing she used, she used I, I, to laugh at me, you know, what I used to do when I was little, um, well, actually, <laughs> not that little, because I was 11 when I became friends with Paula, but this stuck with me was I used to basically bite little bits of what's it's off, lick it with my tongue, and make like sculptures out of what's it <laughs> 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 it was 
so good. Especially when you could shove it in your mouth after and eat it. What's it sculptures? Oh, I might have to start on God. Yeah. Might have to resurrect that. Dear me. What's it sculpture? So, yes, we have fantastic guest with us this week, Lucy O'Brien. Um who is the author of Shebop, which we have been talking about. And we're just going to dig a little bit deeper into the book. So 25 years on. So you said there's additional stuff in this book. Tell us, tell us, what can we expect? Yeah, yeah. So so basically I did um, the last chapter, which ended up becoming a huge chapter. (laughs) Because I was looking at, um, there's been so much that's happened. The last edition came out in 2013, so it was only seven years ago uh, in the scheme of things. Um, but so much has happened. You know, it's almost like we've, we've, we've shifted into another paradigm, you know, when we're thinking about um, women in music. And, um, you know, the, some of the key things I was looking at was, um, uh, for instance, um, trans women and, and non-binary people have really transformed um, a lot of the pop landscape. So it was looking at wonderful artists like Arca and Sophie and Anoni and, and thinking about how they've kind of redefined um, music and image. Um, and then also following through certain artists um, like Lana Del Rey, who I think is a really interesting songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, her kind of quite off-kilter um, Americana view that she has there in her music. And following through the stories of kind of mainstream stars like Taylor Swift, who started out as the good girl and who, um, through her kind of experience of the industry, um, that really turned her into someone much more radical and outspoken. You know, she, she had to... Um, uh, fight that court case with a radio presenter who groped her and um and that really seemed to uh just um enable her to have to feel confident about speaking up and speaking out you know yeah. and she's done a lot of work now um for women who've um suffered sexual assault or, or yeah. domestic abuse so you know it's really interesting um how the other story, the other big story really was um, the impact of the Me Too movement and thinking mm-hmm. about how, you know, how's that impacted on the music industry? We know, obviously, horrible Harvey Weinstein and, and the movie industry, but it did seem to trigger similar sorts of questions in the music industry. So someone like Taylor Swift coming forward and um, and then, you know, there was this whole critique around um like Kesha and Dr Luke and certain high profile cases um and also the whole issue of representation and diversity so um uh in 2018 the Grammy Awards there was just one female artist who won an award out of all those major awards um and when um uh Neil Portman who was kind of the 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 uh, head of the recording academy was asked about this he kind of said, well, you know, women have got to step up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And so oh, there was a massive response to that, including the wonderful Fiona Apple, who was on stage with Shirley Manson. They shared a stage at um, a girls' school festival. Um, 
where they were singing Leslie Gore's song, You Don't Own Me. And um, Fiona Apple was wearing a T-shirt with the emblazoned with the words, Neil Portman. Um, <laughs> the book's out tomorrow. What's next for you? What, what are you focusing on now? Well, interestingly, you know, we've been talking about punk. I'm actually, I've been revisiting my um, teenage years and my, my early 20s. So kind of looking at, so I, I've been actually working on a memoir and, and kind of about punk and feminism and, and the music press. And, um, uh, and I kind of, because I feel with punk, a lot of, the stories and the narratives have centred around London. It got very London-centric. And I think the story of punk is as much about the small towns and what was going yeah, on. Yeah, I um, and I, I grew up in Southampton, which is a very small town on um, the south coast. And um, yet it had a really strong punk scene. And uh, I was in an all-girl band. And so I'm kind of writing about that and revisiting that. And then how... I was in Leeds um, that, and uh, at the time, kind of around just just after Gang of Four and Delta Five really made it big and um, and soft sales. So that was a great time to be in Leeds um, and then coming down to London and starting working for the NME. So I'm kind of covering that era mm. all up to um, up to Shebop. And um, my agent thinks I should include you know, doing that first uh, she-bop. So I might squeeze her in. How did you, just, just a few more questions. I know you've got to go. Um, how did you get into to writing? So what, you know, did, did you always want to be a writer? I, I always remember um, right from, gosh, about four years old. Um, I think there was some um, great aunt or something who said to me, Lucy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a storyteller. And um, and I, and that was it really. I always wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to, didn't want to do anything else. Um, I mean, yeah, I wanted to be a musician as well, and I did that too. But the the real main interest was writing. So by the time it got to teenage years and um, thinking about, well, I've got to make writing a career, so I should at least do something where I can get paid for it. So I should go into journalism. And then what can I write about? Well, I know about music and I know about feminism. So I kind of joined the two um, and um, made that the focus of my writing and ended up on NME and, and, and so on. Um, and then doing a lot for The Guardian. And I wrote for a lot for Guardian Women when there was a women's page there. Um, and that was fantastic to be part of that um, as well. Um, and just kind of built up my work from, from there. So did you, did you ever try your hand at writing fiction? Sorry? Did you ever try telling stories in fiction sense? Fiction, I did. Do you know what? I did. And it's funny. I wrote this book, which was a novel, which I probably shouldn't say because I was thinking about publishing it under a pseudonym, you know. like <laughs> It was kind of um, a bit of a naughty uh naughty novel of the 90s um and um i i kind of was inspired by the idea of writing a sort of female train spotting um and i fictionalized it all um and i still might do something with it you know it was a it i it was a my one and only full complete novel um and you know it did get to the stage where um my agent sent it around publishers but they weren't quite sure about 
I think they were they weren't sure then. I mean, now, funnily enough, post Fifty Shades of Grey, I think. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that absolute, you know, literary classic. Yeah, God. <laughs> yeah. If that can get published, I think you'll be fine. <laughs> Well, thank you so much thank for you, joining Lucy. us, Lucy. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and really look forward to the book coming out tomorrow. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you. And, um, yeah, good luck with it all. You know, it's a fantastic podcast, great music, great choices. Aww, thank you thank very you. much. Okay, we'll speak to you soon, Lucy. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right, on with the show. I think I've done my my bit on polystyrene. I think um I think it's now time to to crack open the wine. Right. You crack on with the wine. I'll talk about polystyrene. So, how much do you know about the personal life? Not huge amount. Well, I mean, I know she had some mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, that that one sentence I just said is is, is <laughs> pretty much it. it. Yeah. So she was born in Bromley, 1957. Tick, knew that. Um, Somalian dad and British mum. Tick. So her dad refused to marry her mum. Cross. And he wanted to take... Didn't know that one. He wanted to take Polly to uh, live in Somalia to save them from a degenerate British culture. It was, I don't, he I don't was, blame him, really. He was very <laughs> anti-Western culture. Joke. Um, um, and actually, she was. Have you read Dayglow? polystyrene story. I started I started reading it and then you said that you you would you were just going to do all the research oh, and I thought, <laughs> so I can actually kick back and read that book without power because the thing is it's great to read a book quickly yeah. but sometimes it's nice to kind of yeah 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 relax and read <laughs> rather than stress read no I know exactly so, what you mean yeah no so I haven't finished it yet yeah but it, um so yeah she was very sort of anti-western culture as well um and sort of in the book sometimes it's framed as though she sort of got that from her dad but I think that punk in general was really anti-western culture wasn't it so I'm not sure how true it was that that all came from him but anyway so when polystyrene was really little the family moved from Bromley um to a halfway house in west London um due to a lot of the racism that the kids experienced because yeah. the mom was really, as a white mom, she was really conscious of uh, mixed race children not having to experience that. Um, and there she had another child and they pretty much lived in a slum for a while. And then they moved to another halfway house in Brixton. And then eventually they managed to get a council house on the Cowley estate off the Brixton road. And this is where um, polystyrene spent the first 12 years of her life. So, yeah, so at this point, like, Brixton was really multicultural and music was everywhere. Um, so for a mixed-race kid this was prob- who was into music, this was kind of like one of the places to grow up. Um, she actually, although um, she was heavily involved in the punk movement, she was actually really embarrassed to come from a one-parent family. Um, she felt that her mum made some terrible life choices and she suffered the consequences of her mum's choices. So mm-hmm. I don't know if she blamed her mum for a lot of the mental health struggles that she had later on in life. Yeah. Or I... If you look at it from the point of view that still back then, people's tended 
to sort of stay together yeah rather than separate so that's, oh, of course yeah so that's that's quite a unique situation plus being mixed race yeah you know th- those things brought brought together make life quite difficult for a kid yeah and make you a target for, yeah of course for bullying. i mean well kids are cruel and they'll find anything but mm-hmm. i mean especially those two things yeah yeah so it's in- just interesting that she blamed her mum for a lot of it not not her dad well, yeah but does she ever go into why she blames her mum um a bit later on yeah sort of yeah she thought of her mum as immoral actually so i mean i w- i wasn't actually saying it was her mum's fault yeah no no that. you I mean was saying yeah. just as in you know and i suppose if you're being picked on it's easy to blame the person who's closest to you and the person who's there um who you know your parents are there to, to protect you and look after you and try and make things better. And if they can't and you're young, you because didn't you know I'm a psychologist? <laughs> Actually, here we go. <laughs> no, I'm not. Carry on, Grace. Right. So, um, yeah, so she was actually quite um, conservative throughout her life, despite her sort of free-spirited side, mm. um, which I'll talk more about in a bit. Um, but yeah, so she was quite badly behaved at school and she was prone to tantrums, always getting into fights. Um, and it's thought that throughout school, that's where her manic depression started. She couldn't concentrate very well in class and she'd sort of just wander off. Um, she was really bright, but hated the structure of school and exams mm. really, really stressed her out. Um, actually, did you know that Brian May was her maths teacher? No. Yeah. How no, cool that- is that? Okay, you win on facts today. That's that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So the mental health stuff, sort of, there were signs of that quite early on. Um, th- this little fact from the Dago book I really really liked. So apparently she used to walk past um, Granada Studio in Kennington and sing and dance as loudly as she could to try and get them to pay attention to her so that she could become a pop star. How oh, cute is that? That's really so sweet. from like really, really early on, she Aww. knew that she wanted to be a performer. Oh. Because clearly like school wasn't for her. Yeah. And so like so many of us. Yeah, exactly. So performance was her uh, a way of, you know, being herself. So the first song she ever wrote was um at primary school. And apparently it was because the dinner lady used to try and make everybody eat meat at school and she really didn't want to. So the lyrics to her first ever song were, hey, Mrs. Johnson, wagging your finger, who do you think you are? (laughs) So I thought that was really cute. So a vegetarian from the age of 12. So already she's got like this, um, she's very sort of conscious of. Well, she's developing very strong opinions and and views on things. Yeah. Well, she knows what she sort of doesn't want to be. Um, So even when she was really young, she seemed to struggle with her identity. Um, apparently a lot of people um, mistook her identity for Greek and she used to just go along with it because it was, like, easier to be Greek than it was to be, you know, half Somalian. Um, And obviously at that point anyway, in the late 50s and 60s, racial mixing was a controversial concept anyway. Um, So, yeah, she, she, her dad really hated Western culture and she, as a, you know, developed a contempt for it too. Um, whether that was a result of him or her upbringing, like her circumstances, we don't really know, I guess. Um, and she saw her mum as this person who lacked morals. 
Um, yeah, which I thought was like quite a for such a young person to have that opinion on on someone, I guess. I mean, she said um, in a lot of interviews and stuff that she felt uncomfortable living in social housing um, because she was fascinated by Hollywood glamour and things like that. So I guess maybe she blamed her mum for, you know. Well, I suppose as kids, you want your parents to make everything okay and keep you safe. Racism, absolutely right for that time. She's living in social housing. Her dad's left. She's not getting on at school. Clearly not feeling like she fits in. And she's looking for someone to blame and she's she's angry at the person who's closest to her. Although, I mean, what do I know? Really? So, yeah, she left school at the age of 15 and she got a job, first of all, in the fashion industry and spent a lot of time in the theatre. Um, she went to a lot of Oval House Theatre workshops, which is where she met photographer and filmmaker uh, Falcon Stewart. You know him? You know that name? No. So he was her, like lover slash manager but he was a lot older older than her he was in his 30s and she was 15 so that was yeah really 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 weird and obviously her mum didn't approve of that um which made their already difficult relationship harder so you said earlier in the episode that she had bipolar yeah she was diagnosed with schizophrenia though at first I think and then it was no, but, later. But would that not be something that would play into like the relationship with her mum? Yeah, and... of course. Yeah. So right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So at fifteen, I think she—that's when she ran away from home. So she okay. went to Hastings first. Um, a lot of squatting, hippies. I mean, festivals. if you're gonna run away somewhere, yeah, I mean Hastings. It's like the, the <laughs> you know, the streets are paved with. Seashells. <laughs> so she went to Hastings first, then to Bristol, then to Bath. And I think it's in Bath where she started to settle down a little bit. So she got a job there and got involved in theatre again. Um, and in between all of this, she actually auditioned for RADA, but she didn't get oh. in. Yeah, okay. I didn't know that about her. Um, so she auditioned for RADA, didn't get in, obviously was really disappointed. Um, and I think she sort of kind of, um, this was a bit of a strange time in her life. So she, she, so she went off the rails a little bit at this point because she used to break into people's houses a lot and steal stuff. And mm. she ended up doing community service. And I think her mom had to go to Hastings. Oh, okay. To, um, sort her out basically. Worst she places was really to going go. off the rails. We went, we went on a friend's break. We did. It was lovely, wasn't it? This year before before we were shut away. Oh, it was lovely, that was. I've never been so excited to go to <laughs> Hastings in my life. It was the first time I'd ever been. It was lovely. Oh, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, actually? it was really, really nice. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. I won't, I won't hear a bad word said about Hastings. No, nor me. Apart from smugglers' caves, do need a little bit of updating. Do. Yeah. I mean, there was only so much they could do, to be fair, because of the the old COVID-19. Oh, come on. I was there when I was a kid, right, in the 80s, and it's <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah. That's what we like about them, really. True Crime Museum was good. Yeah, it was good. Really good. It took me about four or five days to get over it. It, it yeah. All the horrendous uh, interviews with all those mm. awful serial killers. The dating one, oh, though, was did so you? scary. Because things, I think my favourite murder um, covered that story. I can't even remember his name now, but that guy goes on the 
actual TV show and wins. It's like oh, a kind of American horrible. version of Blind Date. And, uh, yeah. Oh, it's and terrifying. And it turns out to be a serial killer. That's just... I didn't creepy. need to see that. So where did it get to? So, yeah, she um, runs away to Hastings, spends a bit of time in Bristol, then Bath. Um, and then it was in 1976 when she got involved with someone at GTO Records and recorded Silly Billy, which you talked about earlier. So that was the first track that she recorded. Um, she Apparently she never got paid for any of the sessions, but then later learned that the manager was pocketing all the cash. <gasps> yeah. Another case of that. So, yeah, so she got bored of the solo sessions and then wanted a band, which obviously mm-hmm. leads on to X-Ray Specs, which you talked about earlier. So I won't go into a lot of that because obviously you covered it before. Um but yeah, so it, like we were talking about earlier, it was mm. when she started touring that the mental health stuff started yeah. to get really, really difficult. Um, she'd always had a lot of hallucinations and visions, apparently, even since childhood. She apparently, when she was younger, thought she saw a UFO. And even when she was diagnosed as a schizophrenic and later um, bipolar, she still was adamant that yeah. that was real. It's one of those things because there are a lot of artists that, that struggle with, with mental health um issues and i don't know where i'm gonna go with this actually <laughs> i was trying it I was sounded hooked. like it was gonna be really really hopeful that's oh, wow. that's what i've got to say here, really <laughs> i was gonna go and i no i don't know no anyway you were saying um she she was clearly um a genius yeah but the classic troubled genius mm-hmm. yeah you know, it came with this dark side Almost like she had to pay a price for that in some in some way. So after she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, I think her daughter Celeste was born after that. And when when she was born, um, Polly went off to India, and her and Celeste and her dad stayed in Camden Hill. Okay. And this is where I think uh, Lucy was talking about earlier, where. Um, polystyrene during the Harry Krishnas and this scared okay. a lot of her friends and family because it was quite full on and they all essentially thought that it was a cult and I, well you, you'd also be concerned if someone's been diagnosed with mm. something are they making a decision with sound, like in sound yeah, of, of course. mind yeah, right? or are they being taken advantage of yeah I think that but you're pretty safe yeah, I think that had a lot to do with it as well. Krishna's, so really. Well, it all turned out all right in the end. Um, nothing terrible happened. So, um, yeah, so apparently the way that she joined properly was that one day her and her husband, Adrian, um, Celeste's dad, they had a row and Polly picked up Celeste and stormed out and he thought that she'd be back, but actually she moved into the Hare Krishna temple which is what Lucy was talking about earlier. And she lived there for about four years. So it was a good chunk of time that she was there. Um, And she said that he could visit once a week if he wanted to, but the Harry Krishnas didn't want him around Mm -hmm. because obviously he wasn't part of their, um, I'll say cult, but I'm not sure if that's entirely fair because I don't really know enough about it. Um, But yeah, so she justified um, joining the Harry Krishnas as like she wanted a set of standards to raise celeste after punk yeah because i don't know what her experience of that whole thing was perhaps 
touring and that took, mm-hmm. took its toll on her mental health. But for whatever reason, she felt like that wasn't a great environment to raise a child. And so in her mind, the Harry Krishnas provided her with that set of standards mm. that would um, help her raise her child in a way that she saw fit. Um, and then she rejected anyone associated with her past for a really long time. Um, it, and it was, it's really interesting, actually, because while she was involved with the Harry Krishnas, they put a band together and played Glastonbury at Not this point really? in her life. Yeah. Okay, I did not know that. What was the band called? Does I'm not say? sure actually. No, I didn't. I don't. I don't know that. That might be something we should uh, look into. But, but yeah, at this point, she she uh, played Glastonbury. But it's interesting, isn't it? How you know to decide to sort of disassociate yourself from all of those people and things that you've done in your past mm. to just kind of start afresh. Yeah. She was clearly really struggling. Yeah. I feel really, when you read Dago, you realise how much of her life was a real struggle. But what a kind she of... She found life so difficult and it's it's so sad. I think Because she shows... was so brilliant. She's got such an inner strength that she probably yeah. didn't realise that she had at the time. To walk away from from that... Yeah. Because you know it's not good for you. Yeah. And to find some peace yeah. and sanity mm-hmm. somewhere else and decide to just disassociate with all of the, what you perceive to be sort of negative energy, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, she seems like a really resilient person because mm. a lot of stuff happened to her and she, you know, powered on through. <clears throat> um, so they put a band together and played Glastonbury. And then after her, what? her friends and family described as, you know, a cult experience. She moved back to Dulwich in 1991. And at this point, her mum had custody of her daughter. And then the reason Polly moved to London was to try and get her daughter back. Um, and this this apparently was a really tough period in her life. So she kept having quite severe episodes. She used to think that people were trying to do things to her. Apparently, at one point, she went to Celeste School. And she stood outside screaming, imagining that people yeah. were trying to kill her daughter. This is uh, this at this point she was really paranoid, yeah. um, and really struggling with her mental health, um, extreme paranoia, imagining people were trying to kill her. At this, and you know she was trying to win her daughter back as well. Mm. At this point, so it must have been really difficult for her yeah. to be on her own. Um, but yeah, so eventually she did get Celeste back, and when Celeste was about sixteen. Um, because apparently uh, Polly's mum was finding it difficult to deal with a teenager. Yeah. So Celeste went back to live with her mum. And then they both moved to Hastings to be near to Polly's mum because I guess she needed the support of mm-hmm. her family because it yeah. would be it'd be really difficult trying to raise a teenager with all those mental health problems. Um, and yeah, and then in 2008, things started to turn around a little bit. So she did a gig at the Roundhouse with the original X-Ray Specs lineup, it got great reviews, but unfortunately she could only do a one-off because of her mental health struggle. She couldn't cope with it, and it turned yeah. out to be her last gig. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it seemed like she really struggled with the whole performance thing. I remember reading something about how she, when X-Ray Specs did Top of the Pops, she really, really enjoyed that experience because it wasn't performing live. 
I think she was quite insecure about her voice. Um, and I think perhaps performing live took its toll on her as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was one, that was her last gig, 2008. And then in 2010, that's when she started to get the back pains and then it turned out to be cancer. And then she died in 2011. How old was she when she died then? Um, um... Well, she was born in 19, what did I say? 1957. So that would have been fifty-four. God, that's really young. Is that right? Yes, your maths yeah. are correct. So um, that's really young. That's really young. Yeah, and then she was just yeah, she was just hugely influential on loads of people. Uh, Kathleen Hanna said that if it wasn't for polystyrene, Riot Girl wouldn't exist. Um, obviously, you you talked about earlier Vivian Westwood saying she was the only uh, person, person speaking any truth. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Pauline Black, another real influential punk, said the world is playing catch up with polystyrene. Good job. Well done, Gracie. That was well researched. That was that was really good. I liked doing this one. Yeah. So Grace, I think I think we're in the ending. If I look at my schedule, it's like it says outro, talk a little bit, housekeeping, the end. What's the housekeeping? Well, housekeeping is all sort of stuff. So, all sort of stuff. I can't even speak. Can I? Said What's been going on? So, if people have a story or a music recommendation or um, anything really, we just want to hear what you've been up to, just email us at rockpoprambles at gmail.com. Our last episode, which was a Halloween special, had we had some stories that were emailed in from from listeners about say readers again I called them readers on the show as well like, they're not reading anything are they um and they're quite funny and they're really short and to the point so like don't feel like you have to write an essay or anything like that but you know an amusing story of something that's happened to you in the past few weeks or something like that I think it's actually just nice to hear from people yeah, so definitely. don't worry if you haven't got any kind of oh when I met you know keith richards or, it, or anything like that you know you don't anything. need to have a story like that it could be literally anything but we did have really nice comments sent in to us and i'm going to read one of them because i know this show um needs to end at some point um <laughs> but yeah i think i think each week from now on we're going to read like one or two or not too many because that will get boring so we had i had a message from mal who listens to the show regularly and he said as after listening to the halloween episode um last week another cracking episode this week it's a great podcast because it's something i always look forward to listening to even in the worst weeks it's always put a smile on my face and made me laugh um you four have definitely made 2020 that much more bearable for me i feel really emotional i genuinely i mal makes me mal you make me howl on facebook He's hilarious. He is hilarious. He is one of the funniest people ever. And it's a genuine honour that he has said that about this podcast because he's brilliant. Um, So I suppose what I want to say as well is like, you know, people that follow us and actually comment on things like, you know, we're not like just ignoring people. We do follow back and we do actually look at your posts and comment. It's it's a great community of people that we've got out there that, that are kind of supporting the show and supporting the band. And uh, I just want to thank everyone that's that's actually listening. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have have your ears. It really is. 
And so rather than damage your ears by talking for much longer, I think it's time to say over and out.